You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn Carlisle. In this series, we are following Jesus and learning what it means to take on His yoke. We are pressing into His promise of true life. Good morning. My name is Norm. I'm in the community group that's led by Noah Polk, Polk and Robin Polk. Yeah, good group we got going here. <laughs> I, I serve here at Sojourn Church as one of the deacons. Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Our sermon today, our sermon text this morning is from Matthew 21, 1 through 11. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on the screen behind me. Hear the word of the Lord. When they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus then sent two of the disciples, telling them, Go into the village ahead of you. At once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place so that was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. Tell daughter Zion, see your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did just as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt. Then they said they laid their clothes on them, and he sat on them. A very large crowd spread their clothes on the road. Others were cutting branches from trees and spreading them on the road. And the crowds who went ahead of him and those who followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in an uproar, saying, Who is this? The crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. My name is uh, James Fields. I serve here as the lead pastor at Sozer Church Carlisle. It's an honor and delight to see so many wonderful faces here this morning, uh, worshiping our Lord and our God together. Amen? Amen. Norm, thanks for reading our text for today. We're so thankful to have him as a deacon, as a leader within our church. He's doing a great job in every way. So thank you, brother, for doing that. I want to propose a question for us this morning. And the question is this. How do we measure success? How do we measure success? Another way of saying this, asking this question is this. How do we value success in this life? You know, there's a lot of different ways we can value success. One way is through our resumes. It's through our prestige. What we accomplish, our awards, our accolades, those things definitely can help measure one's success. Another way of doing this is through relationships, through your partnerships, through your networks, if you will, your friends, your colleagues, your connections, your support group can also be a means of success. 
And finally, but definitely not least, we can also find success through our revenue, <laughs> through our portfolio, right? Through our 401k, through our investments, through our 501c3, through our liquid assets, through our compound interest. And while these, while these means of measuring success are valuable in this world, we see another way in Matthew 21. We see our Lord Jesus approaching Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the place of culmination for the life and the ministry of Jesus because he's entering the last week of his life. And Jesus humbly shows us and gives us another way to measure success in our lives. It's not through our resumes, it's not through relationships, and it's definitely not through revenue, but it's through reverence. It's through piety. It's through humility, through gentleness, through meekness, kindness, through service and servitude. Jesus gives us another means, and dare I say, the only means of measuring success. Remember Jesus' words in Matthew 20 from a couple of weeks ago. He said this. He says, while going up to Jerusalem, Jesus took the 12 disciples aside privately and said to them on the way, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. They will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked, flogged, and crucified. And on the third day, he will be raised. You see, up to this point, there has been constant misconceptions of the Messiah and his identity. And through those misconceptions, we've come to know some things about God. One is that we've come to know that there's no partiality with God. We saw that in Matthew 19, verse 23, when he looked to his disciples after talking to the rich young ruler, and he said these words, it will be hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. We see that there's no prejudice with God. We saw that when Kevin preached about two weeks ago with the parable of the vineyard workers in Matthew 20, 26, when it says this, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And we also see that there's no pride with God. We saw that in Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, when Jesus says these words, he says, whoever wants to be the first among you must first be a slave. For just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. The misconceptions of Jesus are real and they are daunting and will enter into the reality, reality of that even today as we look at Matthew 27. Will you pray with me? Father, we do thank you and praise you for you are a good God and good King. We thank you that you've given us your word. May your word go forth and not come back void, Father. May your name be glorified in everything we do say and think. Give us ears to hear and to understand what thus says the Lord. God, we give you our misconceptions of you. We give you the ways in which we misconstrue you and your character. And we say, Holy Spirit, create within us a clean heart and renew within us the right spirit. We ask the Holy Spirit to give us the right view of Jesus according to the scriptures. 
May he be exalted. As always, God, I ask that you take my little and make much of it. I don't have much to give, but what I do give and what we do receive today, I pray that you will bless it beyond anything that I could ask or we could ask or think. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Do, feel, know. Do, feel, know. These are three objectives for every preacher who preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as a result of hearing sermons, we usually want you to do one of those three things. We either want you to do something. We want you to respond in a certain way. Go and bear fruit. Forgive someone or pray for the lost. Feel. We want you to have an emotive response to the word that you hear, to the word of God that you hear. We want you to lament or to mourn or to have hope or to rejoice or to celebrate. But today I'm going to put the I'm going to put my uh, I'm going to put my uh, everything out there, and I want you to know what I want today. Today, I simply want you to know and to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. I simply want you to know and believe that Jesus is the Messiah. By a show of hands, I'm not talking to adults right now, so adults, you can tune me out. Kids, I want you to look at the screen. How many people, how many of you have seen this show before, this movie before? Raise your hand nice and high. Yeah? Yesterday, my kids and I, we actually watched, we watched this movie yesterday, and it was so good. It was a really good movie. I forgot how good it was, but it was so good and, and so timely for me to, to see it. Does anybody remember the character of this? What, do you remember anybody the na- name of the character of this character up here? Any kids in the audience? Not adults. Adults, put your hands down. Yes, you remember? Huh? Ho- Hove? Oh, oh, yeah, Ove. And do you remember their family name? What was their name? Do you remember, Luke? No, that's okay. Elliot, you remember? Booze, right? They were called the booze. And then, does anybody, any, any of the kids, do you remember what was the main problem with the booze? They always had a problem that they would always do something in response to danger. What would they do? Does anybody remember? Yeah? Run away. Yes, they would always run away from danger, they were always fearful. And do you remember how this booth, the booth that we just saw on the say, remember how he became the leader of the booths? He ended up becoming what they call a super booth, right? And the difference between a booth and a super booth is simple. Booths normally run away from danger, while super booths run towards danger. In our story today, we see how Jesus proves to be a super booth. We see Jesus being a super booth by bravely walking towards the danger that is awaiting him in Jerusalem. Matthew 27, again, begins the last week of Jesus' life, and everything starts to slow way down. And we witness Jesus' deliberate attempt to demonstrate that he was the Messiah, the one prophesied to be the Savior of the world. And we see that how Jesus deliberately shows us this in three particular ways. Jesus shows himself as the Messiah in verses 1 through 4, showing us that Jesus is our prophet, verses 1 through 4. In verse 5, we see how that Jesus is our priest in verse 5, 
And then lastly, we see in verses 6 through 11 how Jesus is our king. Now, those three categories aren't just arbitrary categories because the Messiah, the one whom God was sent to, to rectify and reconcile the world back into himself, had to be able to fulfill all three of these categories. He had to be a prophet, he had to be a priest, and he also had to be a king. And we first see Jesus as a prophet in verses one through four. Look with me in verse one again. It says, when they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus then sent out two disciples. Notice with me the first thing we see as Jesus um, deliberately showing us him being the Messiah. Number one, Jesus deliberately began his last week in Jerusalem. You see, Jesus was nearing Jerusalem and he planned to make a dramatic entry into the city to make himself known as the Messiah but not as the kind of Messiah that most people were expecting. Notice with me in this first verse, the lowliness of Jesus. He arrives in Bethpage. Bethpage simply means the house of figs. It's a, suburban, it's a suburb of Jerusalem lying southeast of the Mount of Olives. It's very close to Bethany, the town of Bethany, where Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And notice how Jesus arrives. Jesus arrived by foot, indicating that he had no means of travel except for walking. He had to walk to Jerusalem by foot. But now, all of a sudden, Jesus needed a new way of transportation. And he went and he retrieved and had his disciples retrieve, excuse me, a donkey. Not a stallion, not a, not a camel, not a mule, but a donkey. This is a good reminder for us as, as believers and followers of Jesus that we ought to use what God has given you to fulfill his purpose in your life. I love what 2 Peter 1.3 says about this. It says, his divine power, it means God's divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of him, him being Jesus, who called us by his own glory and his own goodness. See, Jesus had a reason for making such detailed preparations to enter Jerusalem. And in verses two through four, we see these purposes that Jesus not only deliberately began his last week in Jerusalem, but Jesus deliberately fulfilled prophecy. Notice with me that Jesus sends two disciples into the city to secure a donkey and a young coat. Now, we have to state the obvious, right? We, we have to state the obvious here. Is Jesus stealing? <laughs> Is he stealing? Is he taking something that's not his own? Is he just telling them to, hey, I walked past this place and I saw a donkey. Yeah, that thing might work. Go get that thing and bring it back to me. Let me respond by saying no, an emphatic no, he was not stealing. Because if he was stealing or if he did steal, even in that instance, he could not resurrect from the dead as being the sinless savior of the world. Jesus was not stealing he was simply borrowing the two animals from another man, 
probably a disciple of his, probably someone he knew. And there's three ways that we can interpret what was going on here. Number one, the man that Jesus went to go to ask to borrow the donkey from was a disciple. And the man allowed him to borrow the animal because he loved and he served Jesus. Notice with me this Greek word here in uh, verse four, excuse me, in verse three. He says, if anyone says to, uh, if anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. This word Lord is not just meant as like a secret password to get the donkeys. This word Lord in Greek is equivalent to the very name of Jehovah. It is equivalent to the very name, the unspoken name of God that no Israelite could actually say or pronounce. And this had a strong expression for someone who was not a truly a believer. So this man had to have some type of recognition and some type of reverence towards both God and Jesus as being not just a man, but being Lord. Another option we can consider is that Jesus just simply thought ahead. And Jesus is always thinking ahead, amen? Jesus simply could have made previous arrangements with the owner to borrow the animal. And while this may be a possibility, it also has to be a possibility about, um, however, the possibility that the disciples will be questioned about borrowing the animal makes this highly unlikely that Jesus made previous arrangements. Because if Jesus had made arrangements, they should just go get the donkey and not be questioned by the man who owned the donkey. No, I think this speaks to something so much greater than just the man being a disciple or even previous arrangements. I think and I believe that this speaks to Jesus demonstrating his divine omniscience. Jesus knew a couple of things. He knew exactly where the animal would be. He knew that they would question his disciples about loaning the animals. And then he also knew the fact that the owner would be willing to give them the donkey and the coat simply by saying that the Lord needed them. This is a good reminder for us as a church that ordinary obedience, we talked about this a lot over the course of our sermons up through the last couple of weeks, especially out there on the lawn, that ordinary obedience matters to God. And not just that, but ordinary obedience honors God. Notice with me how these disciples win it without questioning Jesus, questioning his motives, questioning his purpose. I love what verse four says. It says, this took place. I'm, just, I'm sorry, I love what this, uh, uh, what, what specifically verse six, we haven't gotten there yet, but verse six says, the disciples went and did just as Jesus directed them. Ordinary obedience matters to God. Ordinary obedience, obedience honors God in our lives. So if you're an observant reader of the story right now, you're probably thinking this, you're probably thinking, Man, Jesus had been walking over 100 yard miles, excuse me, to finally arrive at Jerusalem. He'd been walking all of this town over, over 100 miles. Jesus probably put in more steps than I do in, in, in an hour by walking those 100 miles finally to come to, to Jerusalem. But there's two questions that come up. Why does he spend the last two miles riding on a donkey? You walk for 98 miles 
You have strong legs. You can endure. You are physically capable of walking too, I would think. We have to ask ourselves, why does he need to ride a donkey now? What's the purpose of this? See this in verse 5, actually. Verse 5, we see that Jesus deliberately rode to Jerusalem on a donkey. Look with me in verse 5. It says, "Uh, tell daughter Zion, see your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey and on a coat, the foal of a donkey. This is actually coming and quoted from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. And I want you to notice a couple of things about this quotation from verse 5 from Zechariah. Notice three things with me. Notice who's coming. Notice how he's coming. And lastly, notice with me why he is coming. First of all, let's notice who's coming. See, Jerusalem king was coming, and he was coming just as expected, yet... He comes somewhat differently than expected. I love what Barbara Brown Taylor says in the the book Preaching Life. She says this, every time God declines to meet my expectations, another one of my idols get exposed. (laughs) I like that. Every time God declines to meet my expectations, another one of my idols get exposed exposed. It's a good reminder for us not to get so wrapped up in our own expectations, to not get so wrapped up in our own expectations that you become so fervent in your own ideas that you miss what God is really doing in your life. Amen? Don't get so caught up with thinking you know how things should go. Don't get so caught up in thinking that you have an idea and you have the perfect mind of Christ that you can actually tell God how your life ought to go. Don't get so caught up with your expectations that you make your expectations become God and dethrone the Lord of the heavens. Now, I say that to you not just as a warning. I say that to you as a man who has time and time again have allowed my expectations in my own life become God instead of the God on the throne. Where I had an idea for what my life should look like and what I should be doing and how I should be progressing and where I should be in life and how much money I should be making and who, who, what my family should look like and what my desires should be and what kind of accolades and awards I should have by this time in my life. A lot of, and again, I'm not saying that aspiration is wrong. What I am saying, that aspiration apart from prayerfully giving those things with an open hand to God is wrong. And not only wrong, but it can become idolatrous. That we can make idols of the things that we expect from God. There's a great danger in measuring God's goodness according to my own personal expectation of him. There's a great danger. There's a great danger of measuring my personal, measuring God's goodness, his glory, his love for me, according to my own personal expectations of him. And here is why. The reason why is because Jesus came in a way that no one was expecting. And this is the way of God. 
God always works best when you least expect him to show up. (laughs) In the black church, they said this, he may not come when you want him, but he'd be there right on time. He may not come when you actually want him to come up or you think he should come up or when you expect him to show up, up, but he will always be on time. That's a word for somebody today. You've been focusing on your expectations of what you think God should do. You've been lamenting in how your expectations don't match up with God's blessing. And because of that, we look at God and say, God, you're wrong. And God is looking back at us and saying, no, I'm not wrong. Your expectation and you looking at your, your, your expectation as an idol is what's wrong. First, repent from your expectation of your idol and then look to me and I'll provide you everything you need. Matthew 6, 6, 133 puts it this way. It says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things. All these other things I will give to you. Psalm 37, 4 puts it this way. It says, as you delight yourself in God, he will give you your heart's desire. Do you know that you can't find your purpose without God? How can you find your purpose apart from the one who created you? It's impossible. Beloved, I encourage you to go back to step one. Take your eyes off your expectations. Take your eyes off your expectations, not because they're not worthy of you looking at them, but take your eyes off your expectations because God is greater than your expectations. The Bible says he can do exceedingly and abundantly above anything you can ask or think, meaning that usually when we ask God for things, we ask him for the bare minimum when God wants to give us so much more. Maybe your expectations are not given because your expectations aren't good enough. That God sees he doesn't just want to give you what's good. He's waiting and and wanting to give you what's best. But you know what we do? (laughs) God, just give me what's good. Just give me something. Anything. (laughs) Just give me something. Notice who's coming. The king is king is coming, but he's coming in a way that's differently than they expected. Notice how he's coming. The Messiah was coming in meekness, not as a reigning monarch. I love what Leon Moore says in his commentary about this. He says, when the prophet says that he comes riding on a donkey, he is contrasting him with the chariot, the war horse, and the battle bow. It is the fact that the king is a man of peace, that peace that's distinctive. In antiquity, a king would not normally enter his capital riding on a donkey. He would ride in proudly on a war horse, or perhaps he would march in at the head of his troops. A donkey was the animal of a man of peace. It would be used by a priest or a merchant or an eminent citizen. Notice finally why he's coming. He's coming in a way, he's coming, but he's coming in a way that's, that's, that's differently than they expected. He's coming not as a reigning monarch, but he's coming in as one of lowly standards and of meekness of peace. And notice why he's coming. Jesus was coming to win men's hearts and lives spiritually and eternally. He was coming to save the world through peace, to reconcile the world to the God of love. 
He was not coming to be a God of hate and of retribution and of war. He was not coming to kill men and overthrow their governments. He was coming to win men's hearts and lives through the glorious news of the gospel that God loves and reconciles himself to sinners. Amen? It's a good reminder for us of what peace really entails and what peace means. Peace is not the absence of adversity. Hear me. Peace is not the absence of adversity. But peace is having the presence, having the provision, and having the power of God despite one's adversity. What I pray for our church is that we will have peace with God and with one another. And honestly, I wish I could take the pain away. I wish I could take the suffering away. I wish I could take the disappointments away, but I can't. But what I can offer you and what, can, what I can help you to see is something so much greater. Is that God sent his son Jesus riding on a donkey as a man of peace to give you peace no matter what situation you're going through. No matter how high you feel or how low you feel, God has given his son Jesus as the man of peace to bring peace into your life. Maybe we've been praying the wrong prayers. Maybe instead of praying for our expectations to be fulfilled, Maybe we should be asking God, God, I need your peace as you show me and reveal to me the expectations that you desire for me. Maybe instead of asking and telling God what he needs to be doing, we need to be thanking God for what he's already done in Jesus and uphold the peace that he's given us so that despite the trials and despite the tribulations and despite the hardships, we have the power, the presence, and provision of God. the God of peace. Not of war, but of peace. And if you are living in an unpeaceful situation right now, I'm not talking about what we see on Facebook or Twitter. I'm not talking about what you post on Instagram. I'm talking about you know if your house and your home and even your very heart is a heart of peace. You know that better than anyone. And if you're struggling with that, which we all do because we live in this broken world, in one form or another, we all struggle in this way. I'm telling you, Jesus has given you the per- God has given you the perfect remedy through the offering of his son as the man of peace. Church family, I encourage us to stop looking for perfection and to stop looking for peace outside of the person and work of Jesus. He's the only one who's worthy of your full allegiance. He's the only one who's worthy of your full surrender. He's the only one who's worthy of all of your worship and all of your admiration and all of your praise. So the question remains, why should we look to Jesus? Look with me in verses 6 through 11. It says, that Jesus, it says the disciples went and did just as Jesus directed them. They brought the, the donkey and his foal and they laid their clothes on them and he sat on them. A very large crowd spread their clothes on the roads and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them out on the road. 
Then the crowds who went ahead of him and those who followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of God, the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Verse 10, when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in an uproar saying, who is this? Verse 11, the crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. So why should we look to Jesus? Not only is Jesus our prophet, not only is he is our priest who's riding in on a donkey, but finally and most importantly, he is our king. Look with me in verses six and seven. We see how Jesus deliberately received the homage of the disciples. He he, he deliberately receives the praise of the disciples, the respect and admiration of the disciples. He doesn't shy it away. He actually receives it. Notice with me the ordinary obedience of the disciples. And this is how I define ordinary obedience. If you're wondering, Pastor Fields, how in the world do you define this term ordinary obedience? Ordinary obedience is simply this. It's obeying God from the heart. It's obeying God from the heart. Jesus says, go into the city and do what I tell you. They don't have, no, they don't have a horse, they don't have a saddle, and they don't have money, but yet they go. They don't have a horse, but yet they're going, trusting to get what they don't have. They did exactly what he asked, despite the uncertainty of the matter. They had no money to buy or rent the animal, yet they obeyed without questioning or doubting Jesus' words. Now, I'm not against doubting. We all, faith can only be strengthened through doubt. You can't just believe everything. And even as we talk about Jesus being the Messiah, I encourage you to go back to Matthew 21 this week and check into this verse yourself to make sure the things that I'm saying and preaching are true. I invite you to do that always at any time we're teaching or preaching in this church. Because I truly believe the truth can be verified in Scripture if it is the truth of God's Word. They had no horse and they had no saddle. <laughs> When they brought Jesus a horse, they didn't even have a a saddle, a donkey, excuse me. They didn't even have a saddle to put on him. But I love the ordinary obedience of the disciples that they said, listen, not only we're going to trust you to get what we don't have. We don't have a donkey, but we're going to go trust that you'll give us one through your word and your instruction. But now we're going to give you, we're going to honor you and use what we have to honor you. Notice what they do. They don't have a saddle. So they take their sweaty, nasty, probably dirty clothes, and they put it on the back of a donkey so that Jesus can feel comfortable riding those two miles. I love this. I love this. Yes, it's sweaty, and and yes, it's dirty, and yes, it's probably not the ideal saddle for Jesus to ride on. But guess what, Jesus? That's all I have, and that's all I can offer. And Jesus doesn't refute them for doing it. He doesn't look at them and say, guys, you know what? This stuff is smelly and dirty. Please go get, go, go get me something better. <laughs> Jesus accepts what they give. In, in their limitation, in their fear, in them not knowing how the moment that they were in, they just responded in the best way they could. And this is a good reminder for everyone in this room that God loves when you respond to him in obedience. Even if it's not the best way of obedience, 
Even if it's not um, the perfect way of obedience, God loves you taking steps towards him towards obedience. Because when you take a step towards God in obedience, you're taking another step away from disobedience. Your obedience matters to God. The things you men, the things you watch or don't watch on your computer screen matters to God. Husbands, the way that you admonish and encourage your children matters to God. Wives, the words that you share with your husband or your significant others, they matter to God. The way that we relate to one another and talk to one another matters to God. The way we care about this community and the unrest that is happening right now in the city of Louisville matters to God. Our obedience matters to him, even if it's not perfect. I love what author Nay Bailey says in her book. She says this. She says, faith is not a feeling. They, they, the disciples operated in faith, and she says this, faith is not a feeling, but faith is choosing to take God at his word. And we want to be people who are operating and living by faith and not just by what we see or what we feel. Verses 8 eight and 9, he not only received the homage of the disciples, he also receives the homage of the people. I love what Claire Chrissy says about this. She says, the time of the feast of the Passover was near, and Jerusalem at this time will be filled with pilgrims from many different countries. All male Jews who live the 20-mile radius of Jerusalem were required to travel there for the Passover. One estimate is that two and one-half million Jews may have been present in Jerusalem during the Passover celebration. Jesus could not have chosen no better time for symbolic, symbolically presenting himself to the Jews. Yet he was fully aware that the minds of the religious leaders were already set against him. He could expect nothing but hostility from them. Now, now imagine this. It, it, the, the atmosphere is electric. It's electric. Jesus is entering into the Passover that on estimate has about one to two million people gathered in Jerusalem ready to, to, to celebrate this Passover feast. And we know from other gospel readers that people had just not just been, uh, they've been with Jesus following him up to this point because he was just in Bethage, which is located right next to Bethany. So many scholars believe that he was, before Jesus came to Jerusalem, he was actually um, at um, Lazarus' house with Mary and Martha, the man whom he raised from the dead. And now this backyard, kind of this obscure preacher, finally makes his way on the scene. This, this, this backcountry preacher, if you will, finally comes to the big city, and everybody's excited. Everybody is excited, and everyone wants to see this man, this man that they've heard about. They, they see and hear that Jesus is coming, the one who raised Lazarus from the dead. I can hear them saying, Jesus is coming, the one who healed the cripple and gave sight to the blind. I can hear them saying, Jesus is coming, the one who fed 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. Jesus is coming, Mary's baby, the one born of a virgin. Jesus is coming, the one who walked on water. Jesus is coming, the one who teaches with the authority and power of God. Jesus is coming, the, the Son of Man, the Messiah sent from heaven. 
And the whole thrust of the picture points to a teeming thousands of people searching for him and rushing out to him to welcome them when they heard that he was coming. Notice how they received him. They received him in two ways. They received him first as king. Look with me in verse 8 and 9. It says, they spread their coats on the road. They, they cut off branches from trees and they spread them all, all out in the road. And notice verse 9, part B. Verse 9 says, then the crowds who went ahead of him and those who shouted said, Hosanna to the Son of God. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Did you notice in verse 9 it says, the crowds who went ahead of him and those who followed. So there is those who are ahead of Jesus who are excited, and then there's a throng of people behind him who also are excited. And they welcome him as a king should be and often is welcomed by throwing their coats on the road. They're making a pathway for their king. Notice what they say to him, um, not just as king, but they also receive him as Messiah. They say, Hosanna, which means save now. Save now, they pray. They call him the son of David, which is a title exclusively used for the Messiah. They say, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord, which means blessed is he who, sent, uh, who was sent to God to save his people, or blessed is he who was sent with the authority of God. They say, Hosanna in the highest, which means God save, we pray, or God who is the highest, save through him whom you've sent. Notice with me that those who shouldn't understand Jesus' identity don't, but those who shouldn't do. This is that continuing great paradox that Pastor Nick talked about last week, that those who should get it don't get it, and those who shouldn't get it, they actually do. And what is Jesus' response? Jesus doesn't deflect, he doesn't deny, or he doesn't denounce the praises of these people. Instead, he humbly received and welcomed their praise as both their God as well as their king. I love what one commentator says at this. He says, James Boyce, he says, up to this point, Jesus had been keeping his messianic claim a secret, lest there be a premature attempt to make him king. And because Jesus was not the kind of king the people wanted, but now, knowing that the time of his passion is at hand, Jesus deliberately provoked this demonstration. And we see that in verses 10 through 11. Look with me in verses 10 through 11. It says, when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in an uproar saying, who is this? The crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. I love this because it shows us, it reminds us that when a king comes into town, he always stirs up the people. Notice, G, notice this, that Jesus is always stirring up uh, um, the city of Jerusalem, that Jerusalem is always being stirred up by her king, the King Jesus. Remember Matthew 2, 2 and verse 3? Just as Jerusalem was stirred up in the beginning when Jesus was born as king of the Jews, and Herod ordered the death of all the Jewish male children, so here the religious establishment is once again stirred up in fear that Jesus once again might usurp their authority and power. How do you know when the true king comes into town? Because everyone is stirred up. <laughs> the influence and the spear, of the spear of Jesus' influence is mighty. And it's obvious. We thank God for 
this king who comes as our prophet, who comes as our priest, and who comes as our king. Would you pray with me? Father, we do love you and thank you. We ask that you would be with us in every way, that you would give us strength to not just hear these words, but to accept them, receive them as only you would have us to do. Jesus, I do thank you that you were deliberate in your last week here on earth by coming to Jerusalem on a donkey. God, we thank you that you are the man of peace. And Father, I pray that you would allow your peace to rule our hearts even right now. Pray that for everyone under the sound of my voice, both here present with me and even those who may look at this on video or even in the future. I pray that your peace, would, which surpasses all understanding, would rule in our hearts and our minds even now in Jesus' name. God, we need your peace. We need you as the God of peace to rule in our hearts. And we ask that you would do it even now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm James A.P. Fields, Jr., lead pastor at Sojourn Church Carlisle. Thanks for listening. We're a church that is rooted in the community of South Louisville, and we are seeking to advance the gospel of Christ in South Louisville and beyond. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support our ministry, visit SojournChurch.com backslash Carlisle, C-A-R-L-I-S-L-E. God bless.